Hi, you're listening to the Queensland Theatre Quality Time Podcast. Let me set the scene. It's not every day we have a centurion in our company. This year, Bernhard Hamlet will mark David Walter's 100th show as a lighting designer with Queensland Theatre. But that's just the numbers game. On this episode of the podcast, David goes much deeper into the story of how he came to achieve this fantastic feat. Strap in, it's a wild ride that takes us everywhere, from gem geology, around the world to Iceland, through the history of light, candles and fireflies, all the way back to our hometown of Brisbane. Enjoy. Hello everyone, I'm Lee Lewis, the Artistic Director here at Queensland Theatre and welcome to another episode of Quality Time with Queensland Theatre. Now that, that little brand, Quality Time, was something that we invented at the beginning of COVID when we, when we decided that we wanted to stay in touch with you and talk about all things theatre when we weren't making it. As we've opened up shows last year, we started talking to some of the people about the shows that we've been making and uh, some of the challenges that we faced. Now all of this work, of course, has been done on these lands, the lands of the Yagara and the terrible people and stories have been told on these lands for tens of thousands of years and this is part of that storytelling tradition. We're very privileged to be on these lands and acknowledge the work that the elders have done to make sure there is a continuity of story across that time. Uh, I don't know where we'll be 200, 2,000, tens of thousands of years from now but I do know that uh, it's our responsibility in this time to, to tell stories together better. Uh, and I hope that that's what we're working towards. Uh, I am very, very happy to be in conversation today with David Walters. Now, when I got here, uh, we were going into the 2020 season and everybody said to me, David Walters is going to be doing his 100th show with <laughs> Queensland Theatre. And that was a very exciting milestone. Uh, and of course, then the year shut down. So you didn't get to do your 100th show <laughs> with the company, but happily, that will be happening soon. People who are listening will have seen your work across years, across companies, across the country, uh, and not necessarily known the, the person behind those beautiful designs, but you've been a lighting designer, creator, all your life? Not all my life, no. Um, like many people, I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, and so it was a process coming to lighting design, um, but I've certainly been a lighting designer for um, over 40 years now. So where did you start? Um, I, I loved literature. I was going to do English, um, but I got a scholarship to do geology, a very good scholarship. And so I did a Bachelor of Science in Geology. Um, during the course of that time, I took every literature elective and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, um, and, and drama elective that I could. And then in the third year of that, there was a... A man, I did all this at, um, at the Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education, it was then known, the University of South East Queensland. Um, and in my third year, they, they started up a drama course there and they brought over a, um, a Hollywood director or, or American director who was from the acting studio and trained with Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. And oh, good heavens. And it was wildly exciting. But, but um, uh, he did drama classes a couple of times a week and I joined in on those. Um, and decided that's really what I wanted to do. and um, But my scholarship was a bonded scholarship. So, so what does that mean? It means that I get paid for the three years of the, so the bachelor degree and then I had to work for four years oh, for okay. the company after that. Um, and that was the contract. Uh, a lot of people broke those bonds. I didn't want to do that, um, despite my desperate wish to keep on going with, with drama. Um, and... 
so I worked for a year as a, a hydrologist too with the with the Irrigation and Water Supply Commission of Queensland. Okay. <laughs> um, and at the end of that year, I'd saved up enough money to pay off my bond. Oh, right. Okay. So I paid all that money back. Yeah, great. <laughs> and then I went back and did the drama course. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you like at least you knew you wanted to do it. And and uh, yeah, and and uh, look, I at that by that time I already had a degree under my belt. Um, I didn't. It, what I well, what I was really interested in was um, understanding people. It was it was I. I I'd always been philosophy was something that always really interested me, and uh, one of the things about understanding the human condition was I felt that if you could really understand it from the point of view of another person, then that would really help you understand the human condition. You just had to multiply it by six and a half billion or whatever it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that that's why I went back into the the acting course and I found it very useful. It wasn't to be an actor, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at the end of the time there, in the final year, I had become really interested in lighting. I'd actually interested in the in the what the, the nature of lighting do. And again, just to backtrack a little bit, but that was because in my philosophical readings, one of the things that came up again and again in from many different philosophies was the notion that as you died, there was a sensation of white light. And I really wanted to understand white light. I wondered, what, what is this white light? Um, and so, uh, again, sort of getting to know light might be a really interesting way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that um, I, I sort of turned my attention over into light. And in my final year, rather than, than direct a piece, I actually lit all the other director's pieces. Okay. It was my, my choice. Um, long story, but out of that, I, like so many people of that time, it was always almost mandatory to do an overseas trip. Sure. Um, so I sold all my possessions. I mm -hmm. bought a backpack and I bought a one-way ticket to Europe. So you went Europe, I went America. <laughs> ah, there you go. So um, I, I landed in London. I did try to get work as an actor yeah. and I disliked the audition process. I did not yeah. enjoy it. Um, however, I found work um, as a production manager, assistant director, lighting designer for a small company, worked with them. I worked with the Tavistock Repertory Company, um, and then I got very sick. I actually got um, glandular fever. Oh. And the one thing that my body was telling me was that I needed sunshine. Yeah, right. And the easiest way, outside of going back to Australia, the easiest way to get sunshine from London at that time was to actually enrol on a kibbutz. Oh, okay. And because remarkably that area of the Mediterranean is not dissimilar to, to, to the temperatures and the climate that I grew up with. Okay. And my inner, inner doctor yeah. must have known what I was doing because I, I was literally a week and I was better. Yeah, okay. I, it, was, it was just getting sunshine 
Um, I was Being living, outside. I was living in a squat in London in fairly squalid conditions. Oh, London and, is squalid. And, oh, it has been. It's a good word for London. <laughs> I, like I never really connected with London. I yeah. I was, it was an amazing experience when I first arrived there, the very first day, the middle of June, here am I, a Queenslander in my thongs, wandering down along the Thames. And and I'd grown up with, you know, um, old father Thames rolling along the mighty, the mighty river. Mighty river. And, and I looked at this muddy creek there with sort of with, with shopping baskets and wheelchairs oh. sticking up out of the mud. <laughs> this is the mighty Thames. I know. I was brought up on colo- like the colonial uh, pictures of, of London being the centre of the world as well. And I was so disappointed when I first got there. I was It was grey and grim and pokey and... And, that's, and, and, and they seem to thrive on misery. Misery, and I like it wasn't <laughs> the mag- me, no, it wasn't the magnificent centre of the cultural not, world not that I... I'd been led to believe. And then I went to see some theatre, and I went, well, I seen better theatre back in Australia, which I was not expecting to be the experience. And I kind of that picked apart the the cultural the, cringe very quickly. Yeah, no, no quickly. I, I got I got over that pretty quickly yeah. too. So, oh yeah, right. I've been lied to. <laughs> yeah. sort of, let me have another think about the yeah. world. Yeah, no, yeah. it was it was a, it was a bit of a revelation that. But um, from from that um, from from um, working on a kibbutz for a few months, I then. Um, I, I travelled extensively in Europe. Now, when I was in London, I worked on a play that was written by an Icelandic playwright, um, and it was a, brand, a production of a brand new Icelandic play, done by a, a, a director in London who'd gone uh, two years previously over to Reykjavik and directed King Lear for the National Theatre of, of, of Iceland. And while he was there, he collected some scripts. And, so, and then he produced this script in London and I worked on it. And the Icelandic playwright um, came out and and we spent a quite a bit of time together and we actually tried to get the, the production that we did as, as a tour, um, a regional tour in Great Britain, which didn't come off, but I got to know this chap really well and his wife came out also. And um, they said to me, you know, you really must come and visit Iceland. <laughs> and so like a, a, a true Australian, you did? Well, it was... It was Yes, it was. It was not quite as simple as that. In as much as I, I, I hitchhiked all through Europe, and I was in the north of Spain, and I was contemplating exactly where, where my life was going to take me. You know, you know how you in those yeah. kind of. You, it's like life is just this sort of unwritten story. No, um, I'm quite different to that. But you keep going. Mine, mine, <laughs> mine was very unwritten, and I'm standing on a, on a road in the north of Spain at night. Hitchhiking in Spain was very difficult um, and I'd been all day hitchhiking without much success and I was on one side of the road which was taking me down south and I thought, you know, do I do you know, Portugal and down into Malta and a crossover into Morocco and, and or do I go Iceland? And so I changed sides of the road, hitchhiked somewhere else, rang Iceland. The wife of this playwright... Um, She's an actress and an astonishingly well-known actress in Iceland, actually, still working at the age of 80 lots. <laughs> yeah. um, and I rang her and she said, look, my brother owns a shipping company. I'll give him a call. And so she called um, her brother and I got a, she said, ring back in 24 hours. And I rang back in 24 hours and she said, if you can be in Bilbao in northern Spain, within 24 hours there's a ship sailing to Iceland. So I jumped on a cargo ship to Iceland. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That is extraordinary. And um, even in Iceland, I, I initially I didn't work in theatre at all. I, I, um, 
I needed some money and so they had friends who had a farm up in a remote valley in Iceland so I spent three months on this farm up in a remote valley in Iceland. Yeah and the piece of uh, the piece of knowledge out of this to the whole world is if you say to an Australian you should come visit us in Iceland <laughs> they will. They do. Yeah. They will turn up so just be very careful saying to Australians <laughs> because they will end up on your brother's boat. <laughs> indeed. Yeah indeed. but that's a fascinating you see it's it's interesting this is a half work conversation for me David because we're going to be working on Teresa Rebeck's Bernhard Hamlet shortly. And so I've been reading a lot about Sarah Bernhardt mm. and how she was described as, as being light. People use that word around her a lot. Right. That right. She was a source of light. Yeah, emanated from her. From her. Mm. And you go, it's something that, the, again, talking about human condition, but then also performance and body relationship to light. Mm. So many people in the theatre have talked about try, using light as a way to describe that extraordinary charisma that some performers have. And when they turn on their lights, mm. they've mm. learned to carry their own source of light, what that mm. actually is. And I'm, I'm interested by your body knowing that it needed light. You know, it, it was it was there was never a direct message or anything like that. It was just innately it just made sense. One of, one of those gut feelings, if yeah. you can call it that. It was just it was yeah. Just, there's not a lot of vitamin D going around in life. That's right, and I just I, <laughs> I just knew what I needed. <laughs> Unfortunately, you didn't have a, a, a medical friend that gave you a bottle of, of supplements. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. It's a it's fascinating the path towards the thing that you ultimately like drill down into in your life. It is, and and it, it what motivates you and what drives you, and 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 um, I guess ever since I've been a young boy, it's, I've been driven by a burning curiosity. I'm, I'm a sort Which of very man. inconvenient sometimes, can't <laughs> oh, it? Oh, terrible! <laughs> <laughs> and drives people around you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but is it, but is that interesting, especially when you you work in probably the most ephemeral bit of the ephemeral art that is theatre, mm. in that people feel what you do, but they can't, couldn't necessarily, unless you make it a feature, put their finger on it? Look, the best way for me to, to talk about that is to say that, uh, and I use this expression quite often, human beings are creatures of light. We are unbelievably sensitive to light. We, uh, a lack of light, an absence of light is anathema to us. We, we, we search for light. And I often, often say that if uh, uh, aliens were to visit the Earth at night and they were to look down, they would think there was some kind of bioluminescent fungus growing over the Earth yeah. because wherever there are centres of people... We turn a, on a light, There's a we? light. Wherever there are roadways, there's light. It's like pathways. I remember being on a, an overnight train up to Sapa in north, northern Vietnam and... It must have been, oh, maybe three thirty, four o'clock in the morning and I woke up on the train, I looked out and couldn't see anything but there was an area that was obviously going to be, I could see people sort of, no, actually I couldn't see anything apart from this one light bulb that was revealing like the beginnings of the market. The yeah, people yeah, arriving, yeah, yeah. setting first, up and that sort of stuff yeah. and it was just this one light bulb yeah. and that thing of by, by, the like, by the time it would be 7 o'clock in the morning there'd be hundreds of people around but there was that one light yeah. that made sense of the darkness. It's sort of, I mean, you know, there's two things about it that you can talk about and, and uh, um, often when I, I, I did quite a bit of lecturing in lighting design but you'd, you'd sort of say that firstly we are unbelievably sensitive to light. Like yeah. it's, it's something that's just innate in us. It's, it's so innate that it's built into our language and it's m most languages I've encountered um, where there are expressions involving light 
that are nearly always the positive ones, the bright ideas that dawned on him, these sorts of things that are built into the languages. And even even words um, you know, like epiphany or something like that, when you go back to the Latin roots, it has a diaphanous. It, they have All of our understanding is seen in light. Like the more exactly. light you have, the more you understand. Exactly, yeah, yeah. the, the, the mm. light of understanding. And the absence of light is something that is... Scary. And it's 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 fearful, um, a dark character. You know, like yeah. it's it's it, that's that sensitivity to light. When you say people can't quite explain it, is that we are so finely tuned to it. We are so finely tuned to light. And our eyes are incredible. And uh, and, <laughs> and we respond acutely to to light without even knowing it. Like there's there are ways. There are things that happen without us even knowing it. The other thing that light has done and our, our, the, the, the human being's need for light is that it's driven entire economies so that, you know, the Middle Ages in, in Europe was largely alfalfa because the oil was used to burn in lamps. Alfalfa oil? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Um, the streets of Denmark were all lit from the oil from cod's livers in the 1600s. Okay. Um, the whaling industry in Australia was yeah. entirely about light. oil that was mostly used to burn for light. Up until, I think it was 1865 in Australia, um, all the beef that was killed, the meat was thrown away and the tallow rendered and that was what was sent off to, off to England before we got refrigeration. No way! Yeah, it was the, the, the tallow was the valuable part. The tallow part, was the bit. The valuable part. Oh, and, and okay. And if you go back in time, you know, 200 years ago, um, light was such an important part of life that burning a candle was really, really important. However, that was the privilege of the rich. Poor people could afford a tallow candle for about two, one tallow candle for about two hours a night. Um, and if they ran out of money, they ate it. They arrange their sleep patterns differently. They arrange their travelling patterns differently. I was fascinated by the, the idea of a world lit only by fire. Indeed. What that is. The, yeah. What that looks like. Well, certainly living in this country, yeah. that's been absolutely part of the history of this yeah. country for a very long time. And wealth was like the, the money that you needed to be able to extend your day beyond sunlight. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, there was a... <laughs> I tell this story often, but I'll bore you with it. Um, there, was, there was a moment in the um, late 18th century where you had um, conspicuous consumption that caused an energy crisis in as much as for, for a couple of thousand years the only way of making light really was by candles or lamps, yeah. burning yeah. a fuel in, a, in, a, in a, either solid fuel in a candle or liquid fuel in a lamp. That was the only way we could make light. In the late 18th century, in France in particular... One of the ways of demonstrating your wealth was being able to burn lots of candles. candles at night. And so at a ball, they would burn the equivalent of a working man's yearly salary in candles. But not just candles, they burnt the very best quality candles that were made from beeswax. The beeswax candles were infinitely preferable to the tallow candles. Well, yes, because what you have to imagine, though, is that these are candles in chandeliers, right? Yep. And you're dancing in a ballroom. Underneath them. Now, 
if you don't have really good candles, it drips Correct. down onto your beautiful ball gowns. And it and it smells terrible. Yeah. And it, it yeah. And it's smoky. It's smoky. Yeah. So tallow candles were not the thing to use. So beeswax candles were, were burnt, and it became very fashionable to demonstrate your wealth by dancing till five a.m. Like it became, you danced through the till night. Till the sun and came then, up. And then you went to sleep and woke up at five p.m. It just, yeah. That was a demonstration of wealth. The problem with that was that they actually ran out of beeswax. Really? It was mostly came from northern Africa. Okay. And because of this sort of conspicuous consumption, this... this they <laughs> ran out. They were actually running out of beeswax. And, and oh. strangely enough, technology stepped in and there was a, a lamp developed called the Argand lamp, which took the old kerosene lamp or fuel yeah. lamp and put a cylindrical wick in it and put a cylindrical glass with a very choked chimney over that and they were able to produce ten times more light artificially than ever before in the history of man. Oh, yeah, right. And so all of a sudden it became terribly fashionable to have the Argand lamp and the bees were spared. Oh, thank <laughs> heavens. Thank heavens, the poor bees. <laughs> but, but as I say, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the, the search for light is driven economy. So, so it is such an integral part to the way we as human beings function and the way we respond. And it's not, it's not by accident that on stage we use light. <laughs> yeah, and that emotion, it's an incredibly emotional tool. Exceptionally. Uh, and insidious in that if you're playing with it carefully, people, again, people can't. They don't know. They're very vulnerable to it. <laughs> they don't so, know, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, there are fun moments. It's wit in light. Oh, absolutely. When we can see it, but when we can't, the, with the feeling that goes with light, you kind of go, you don't, there are moments in theatre where you don't know why you're crying. Yeah. And often it's because of things that are taken away from you, like light, detail, yeah, or, or it's revealed. It's a, it's a combination yeah. of combination. things. Combination. It's it's yeah. I mean, it's a sim seamless combination of things in theatre that is the wonderful part. It's the seamlessness, isn't it? It's, it's really the, it's, it's like the all the work is the, in hiding the seams. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the whole greater than the sum of its parts is always yeah. my definition of, of good, a good theatrical work. Well, it's a, it's an I'm looking forward to how we shape that seamlessness because I think we've got... Um, I've had a beautiful moment. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it because I'll ruin it. <laughs> it's a beautiful moment at the end of Bernhard Hamlet, mm. which is actually about light and vision and, uh, and future. Indeed, and, and, and it's using light to carry the message to the future. It, yeah. it's, it's light as a method of transporting ideas, which yeah. is, yeah, no, that's it is, it fascinating. Is fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. fascinating. But I have to, uh, moving a little bit away from the philosophy of light, uh, light and, and honestly, you will never bore me. I love imagining those different times when I don't have access to what I have now, how it, would have shaped, switch, yeah, how it would have shaped, shaped me changes. differently. Yeah, astonishing yeah. changes. Uh, For the human beings, the human condition has changed astonishingly in 200 years. Unbelievably. Uh, um, even in a hundred. <laughs> well, it, it, it started a couple of hundred yeah. years ago, but, but, but yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, in the last hundred years, the proliferation of being able to produce light outside of, of, of um, burning something. Um, well, we're reaching the edge of that too, aren't we, our capacity to oh, do to, that? Oh, to burn things, but we're yeah. producing light in so many different ways now. Yeah. There's just so many ways possible of making light that had never, ever, ever been known before. Yeah. It's sort of, I think, the, you know, basically you had ability to burn fuel or bioluminescence. Um, lovely mm -hmm. story about bioluminescence. But, um, um, and, and then there was phosphor or phosphorescence. Phosphorus. They were about the only light sources we had. Um, there was a, a lovely story. Talking of bioluminescence was a lovely story. I, I, um, 
it was around the end of the 19th century here in Australia. Yeah. And there was the Shearer strike in 1895 in Queensland. And there was a group of people led by, I think, Henry Lawson, if I'm rightly. Okay. Who decided that they wanted a utopia. And they moved over, I think it was to Patagonia. They moved over to South America. Yeah, I have heard about this. And there was an Australian colony in South America. And I can remember they they had these wonderful visions of a perfect future, sort of a sort of egalitarian sort of future. And they used to have balls, but because they were not at night, they used to have dances at night, but because they they didn't have a great deal of money, one of the ways the women used to decorate themselves was to use hair nets and captured fireflies. And they would have fireflies in their hair at the ball. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it always struck me as a lovely image, that. Yeah, right. Okay, poor little fireflies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not sure, you know, I'm yeah. not sure how they felt about it. <laughs> wow, Okay. <laughs> well, and now we have Swarovski crystals Indeed. instead in hair nets. Yeah. Indeed. Catching light. Indeed. Catching light in a net. Yeah. Okay, back to like back to like the more prosaic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to take you on. No, 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 no. I can see it's get, we're going to we're going to struggle to actually get a play made you and I. There's going to be lots of <laughs> lots of other conversations we have to make the play. Um, but okay, so first show at Queensland Theatre, what was that? Oh, yeah, right. So that was um The Three Sisters by Chekhov directed by Gregory Gregory Gesch back in 1985. Okay. And that came about if I leap back a little bit in time, I, I in Iceland, I, after working on a farm, I actually decided to stay there for a year and I started work with a theatre company there and um, that was an extremely... It was a, um, it was a little left-wing, agit-prop-style theatre company, yeah. really, and, and that went ex- exceptionally well. Um, and the play was taken on tour around the country and I took off on tour with it around the country um, and I decided that I really liked living in Iceland, so I um, got a job as an English teacher. Okay. Um, and did theatre on the side, and then after a, a year of that, uh, something remarkable happened, and I was able to become a the first fully freelance lighting designer of Iceland. And okay. I did then about five years of freelance design work in Iceland, um, and wanted to get work in Australia and wrote to a lot of theatre companies and the one that actually responded was the Nimrod. Oh, yeah. And I came to sort of Sydney and I did a show in 1983 with Nimrod on the basis of, this, of that show. I was given an Australia Council grant to to six months' wages, basically, to work with a variety of companies in Australia. Okay. Um, what was the show at Nimrod? Do you mind me asking? Uh, yes, I can tell you. That it has very strong memories for me. It was Salonica by Louise Page. Okay. And again, another, yeah. like, without digressing too much, but, but <laughs> Louise Page was an Eng- English playwright. I use was, she passed away last year. Um, was an English play- playwright um, who, at the stage in the life when I met her, she had just written her first play, which was, or first major play, which was Salonica. She left it with the Royal Court in London and she'd come to Iceland. And the English department of the University of Iceland contacted me and sort of said, there's this girl here interested in theatre, can you maybe help her? And so she came and talked to us and ended up living with us for six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And and in the meantime, Royal Court rang. Actually, they rang rang to our apartment in Iceland and she got the news that Salonica had been accepted um, by the Royal Court. 
and it went on to be performed. It was subsequently translated into, what, 27 languages. Okay. And it was picked up by the Nimrod. Yeah, right. It was done here in Brisbane also. But be- because it, had, it was written by Louise and the Nimrod was sort of interested in my work, um, Louise said, well, I'd really like David to light it. And yeah. that was how I did the, the first show at the Nimrod. And, um, and from that, I got that Australia Council grant. And one of the companies I worked for in that six months was the Brisbane, the Queensland Theatre Company. And that was the Chekhov piece. And on the basis of the Chekhov piece, they then offered me a couple more shows that year, um, which I did, but I had to go back and forth to Iceland in the meantime. Which had been very convenient. <laughs> it was hard work. It was expensive and hard yeah. work in those days. Yeah. Um, and then I was thrust on the horns of a dilemma because uh, Alan Edwards, the then artistic yeah. director of what was then known as the Royal Queensland Theatre Company, um, offered me uh, the, the role of resident lighting designer with the Queensland Theatre Company. As of the middle of 1986, at that same time in Iceland, mm, I'd been involved in a number of big projects and one of the really interesting ones was the building of the Reykjavik City Theatre where they were the city was building them their own purpose designed premise with a 500 seat specific theatre two small theatres um, and I was sort of fairly integrally involved yeah. in the in the consulting on the, the the lighting of that whole thing and it was about two years away from completion. Oh, just at the tricky time. And and I had to make a decision, do I go to Australia or do I yeah. do I stay in Iceland? I I ended up coming to Australia. It was it was a hard hard choice, but it was never intention to stay. It was, it was simply <laughs> it, was one, it was just going to be a couple of years, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was yeah. going to go back and pick up because I was starting to get work outside yeah. of Iceland and Scandinavia. And yeah. I I really really enjoy the Scandinavian life at Weber, yeah. as opposed to to what we described before. Yeah, there's life is the antithesis of misery. There's is about light and, and yeah. brightness and white. But and not the whole year, darkness. Too. Oh, it darkness, but there. In them, yeah. like in, in their yeah. design, in, in yeah. everything's clean and and it, it's not that same kind of, um, well, as I, I used to talk about, it, this sort of um, adoration of misery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this won't be a very popular podcast in England. I'm just no, no, you. I'm not selling it at all, <laughs> no, am I? No. <laughs> Having said that, I, I, I do talk about Louise, who was a very dear friend of ours um, and unfortunately passed away from cancer just, I think it was... Year before last, actually. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so so Australia won somehow. They did for the for, <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, there, uh, there was talk of me going back and forth to Iceland for six weeks at a time, and I, I sort of said, I don't think I can do that. Yeah, physically hard. <laughs> it, it, yeah, doing it six times a year or something. It was just. Oh, it's it was, a long, long flight. It's a, in those days. It's a, a very a long lot flight, longer. Where did you like? Because you would have. Look, the, the options of getting the getting to Iceland are wonderful and as much as the diametrically opposite almost. Mm-hmm. And and so you can go any which way. I suppose you can go the other way too. And, um, yeah. The most interesting way I find is up to, to Tokyo and then up to Anchorage and from Anchorage over, over the, the top. Pole, down, yeah, down right. Into... But it's always going to be a double stop trip, isn't oh, it? Oh, it is, yeah. 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 And, and you know, back in those days, you, if you could do it under 40 hours, you were really lucky. Oh, <laughs> there are only so many times you can drag your body around the globe before it starts protesting. Um, yeah, well, that funny thing of a, about a, the, the difference in light between the space and the story of light in different places, do you think that Australian light has shaped you differently as a designer? 
That's an interesting question. I think, yes, um, I'm fairly intrinsically connected to the land of Australia. I, I was very aware of that when I was living away from it, that how, what an important part, and I, I, when I say the land, um, it, I grew up um, outside of a town and I grew up in the bush, like yeah. I, I lived in the bush. The, yeah. the bush was, uh, so for the first 15 years of my life at least, I was just sort of out in the bush every day and um, that was a really important part of my life and obviously one of the things about the bush are the, are the, the, the moods and the light and the, like it, it, it has its own world. What was interesting for me is in contrast was the first winter in Iceland. Now, you talk about it being dark. The funny part about it was that I was terrified as a Queenslander. Yeah. You know, I'd heard stories about, you know, icicles three metres long and snow up to the gutters of houses and, and these And is that all true? In a way, yes. But what... And, and, and at 24 hours dark and all these sorts of things. But what came as a complete shock to me was that once you get... A, a covering of snow, you only have to light a candle 50 miles away and everything lights up. And so rather than being dark, it was this magical, magical world where all kinds of unimaginable light that I'd never experienced before were just... It was, a, it, was a, it was a wonderland. I was absolutely gobsmacked. And, then, I mean, everything from, you know, the light at midday, which is just travelling horizontally across the earth, hitting crystals growing on trees of ice that have come from hot springs and, uh, and, and, and then, you know, playing over the top of night times as all the northern lights at night and, and the, moon. the moon. The moon is... We think of the moon as female and, and soft and, and benevolent. In the, in the cold climates, it's harsh and it, it's masculine. Oh, okay. we, talk, we talk about we tend to talk about give it a, a femininity when we talk about the moon in 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 the Icelandic language it's it's masculine it's harsh it's 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 the fearsome you know yeah. and the sun is a soft benevolent life giver <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of gives an in, indication of just the experience of light in the two countries yeah right oh that's a wonderful surprise it was <laughs> astonishing it was truly astonishing um so, but you ask about how it shaped me as a lighting designer. I, I can't quite answer that. I know it has. And I know when I look at, you know, obviously, one of the things is a lighting designer, you spend a lot of time looking at paintings and, uh, you know, yeah. the McGubbins and these sorts yeah. of people, you look at the light in them and you go, you know, what, what are they capturing? And you see, you, you're seeing the Australian artists capturing Australian light it's, it's, and what that is. It, yeah, it's, it's quite specific and it's yeah. incredibly recognisable. Yeah. How you recreate it, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but, that's the, but that's what we try to do, isn't it? It we is. We try to actually find it a is. way for people to see. And, and, and I guess, sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you, but it was, no. what's the interesting part about it and working in the theatre, I'm sure you're aware of this, is that if you want people to understand or to get to understand it's Australian light, you don't depict Australian light. You do something that allows their imagination to create that. Because the art of the art of theatre is not showing you something. It's actually allowing you, the audience, to go on a journey. It's 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 allowing you to get the idea your, to, yeah. to 
Because we've got to pull, we've got to get the audience to pull the world into it, not make a real world. That's right. We we, yeah. we can't sort of didactically say this is what this is what it is. Yeah. You, you've got to bring them into it, and then they have the epiphany. They have, they have the realization. They understand, and that's what gives people this astonishingly wonderful feeling when they've been to see a work they really enjoy. Well, because they've brought the whole their whole world in. They, yeah, they've gone on a total journey. Yeah, yeah. in a funny little pokey box. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifyingly so. And, yeah. and yes. it's just the, the grubby side of back theatre. Yeah. Oh, look. Why do you always wear it flackly? It was because theatres are really filthy and I'm invariably crawling around on my knees at some point before going to that function. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Um, in the schema, you've worked across, I'm just going to say, most of the theatres in Australia as they've been made, unmade. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we've all done that. Like the, you tour works, you you get to know the different the different spaces around the country. So that when there's a new one built, it's, it's exciting. Have you? Oh, I haven't seen in there yet. All that mm. sort of stuff. Mm. What's your favourite space in the country? Uh, for for theatre to work in, yeah, to work in. Look, believe it or not, strangely, I I think the the QPAC Playhouse, from my point of view, yeah. um, is one of the the best resolved playhouses of Australia. There was a the- there was a yeah. history of playhouses that started with the Festival Centre in Adelaide and went over yeah. to Melbourne and then the, the was built up you know, the, they were built up here and there was an evolution in learning in that. Yeah. And I think they got a lot of it right. So Adelaide was first? Yeah. Adelaide okay, was first. all right, yeah that makes sense because the playhouse here does feel just slightly bit better than the playhouse in Melbourne. Yes. And that's it, not an intercut that's not a no, it, it's it, better. It, it's, it's not it, it, they learned something great a little were, bit more graceful about there it. There were people learnt from mistakes that were made in Melbourne and Yeah, that and audience is just that little bit wider in Melbourne and it yeah. makes it sightlines quite hard to actually for bigger works. And it, it, technically it's a very good space from, yeah. from my point of view it's a very good space to work in so as mundane as that may sound and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of other you know astonishing no, there are spaces good ones. I do love the I love the um the one the theatre royal down in Hobart oh yes that's a magic that's, that's an yeah, magic theatre that's theater. like a that's, that's you know they still have a cannonball run Yes. Yeah, so Cannonball Run, for those of you who are listening, um, it's not just a Burt, a Burt Reynolds film <laughs> from the 1980s or 70s or whenever that was. The Cannonball Run was the way of creating thunder in the in the theatre. So these big old theatres used to have literally a, a, a channel, a path up the top of the theatre and you used to put a cannonball, a cannonball in it and it was a metal track and it used to ru- rumble around the theatre and create the sense of yeah. thunder. So it's a great, and beautiful, old... Indeed. At the same time you had what, the, I think they were called a thunder sheet. Thunder sheets. I love a thunder were, sheet. Which yep. was a very long piece of metal with a handle on the end and you'd rattle that. Rattle that and that and was... And yeah. combination of those two things could give a pretty, yeah. pretty convincing feeling. Surround that. sound. It was like <laughs> early surround sound and, and Theatre Royal still has a cannonball. They don't let you use it but it does Exist. Theatre Royal was amazing when I was down there with one of, I think it was one of the Queensland Theatre Company shows actually. We were, um, excuse me, we were in the auditorium and, and the, one of the chaps in the theatre said, Do you want to come downstairs and see an old inn? And you, we could actually go down underneath the seating of the Theatre Royal and that apparently in the early 19th century that was uh, an inn and on the walls down there, there were really, really beautiful drawings of schooners done by sailors. All oh, right. They used to sit down there and I'd, I'd drink their whatever and, and, yeah. and, and sketch, and there were just there were still remnants of that. And then there were the old, um, the old, uh, the convict seats up the top. Yeah. 
where yeah. they used to be locked into the seats. The chains are locked in. You go, oh, this is this is extraordinary. I mean, the, I mean, the theatre is gorgeous. I, I I was very fortunate as much. The first way I ever saw it was I came backstage, and um, the backstage has been because of fire is new, yeah. and so it's fairly. Same as any other backstage mm-hmm. you walk into, really. Um, but they said, watch this. And they flew the fire curtain out and revealed the auditorium. And they they left all the lights on in the auditorium. So all the electric chandeliers and yeah. all that uh, that plaster and that mm-hmm. gilt and that doll's house of a yeah. little theatre in there. It was just one of the most magical moments. It is very <laughs> beautiful. It is. And it's a funny thing, isn't it, that the need that we have to tour works. It's one of the ways I think we actually hang the country together story-wise is by making a work and then sharing it around the country, as difficult as it is. Australia's always going to be difficult insofar as distance and touring and and taking care of people away from home, all of that sort of stuff. But it's an, it's an interesting thing, especially in the light space, moving a story between, because when you design a work, a show, you're designing it for the space that yeah. it's in. The, the light experience is so dependent on the, the nature of the building. You know, weirdly, the colours of the walls impact so much on so how you shape it and fit it to the actual yes. space. And then we say, oh, we're going to tour it. And something in you just <laughs> goes, oh, yes, it's so yes, hard. Yes, it is, it is very hard. And I've spent hours and hours and hours and hours slaving over drawings for trying to get shows to fit into to touring venues. Um, I think one of the things that aspects of theatre that you, you don't really think about it it's a little bit like when you look at a sculpt, sculpture, you don't think about all the rock that's been chipped away. Yeah. But in theatre, one of the, the hand and glove thing of lighting is masking. So unless you're doing a completely exposed lighting rig and so you can see where all the sources of light are coming from and, and, and know exactly, it's just like Brechtian, if you like, um, we spend a great deal of time putting legs and borders and smothers and panoramic masking Which and all, all this sort of bits of black fabric or walls and, 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 <laughs> and or flats or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in terms of creating lighting magic, it is it can be absolutely integral. And I spend a lot of time spending getting the masking right before I actually do the lighting, because it 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 is, as I say, it's hand and glove. Yeah. You, 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 one without the other just doesn't doesn't do the same thing. It's interesting that question about tastes and styles and how how things are shifting. Um, when we see the lighting fixtures and when we don't, mm. there's uh, the, over the last twenty years there's been so much, so so much fashion for seeing the fixtures. Yeah. Um, yes. but it just does a different thing. It's not a it right does. or a wrong. It's just how uh, look, is it's, it changing. I think you, the, the the word there was fashion, and I I'm reminded I it was a wonderful book that was written. Um, two theatrical owners in Italy in the, I think it was the 15th century, had this 20-year-long discussion, there's letters all about it, about whether you needed to have the auditorium lights on or off during a show. And, you know, one place felt that it was absolutely imperative that everyone could see each other and, and, and the stage, and the other place went to an astonishing amount of trouble putting these, um, like, um, doors up in the ceiling and they could haul the chandeliers up into the ceiling and then close the doors again. Well, they do that at um, at the Lincoln Centre. Mm. I, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's been rough from right back then, but the, the discussion at the time was, you know, which is right, which is... And I see that sort of thing as a little bit as a kind of a fashion thing. It, it's a I'll be interested to see what, like, it, it, that funny thing of the audience being willing to be more present. Uh, mm, uh, it is an interesting one. Um, it, I find mostly it doesn't work. 
from my point of view, mostly. But at other times, it seems to work incredibly strongly. Yeah. And there, there are, there are particular times in a show when, when exposing the audience at a given moment it emotionally, can be very yeah, it can, can be, be very really, it can, really can be. Um, have you ever considered doing anything else? <laughs> As I said, I'm 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 curious, I'm, uh, <laughs> um, so that uh, I I have so many in things that interest me greatly. Um, obviously, when I did geology, it was for because I I actually liked gems, oh, um, okay. and I was interested in cutting and polishing gems. Um, again, play of light, but. <laughs> um, I also, you know, if I had, you know, if I had multiple choices, I would be a paleontologist, an archaeologist, um, I would be a a zoologist, I would be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things that really, really interest me, um, and 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 also in in indigenous culture, there's, there's a whole wealth of stuff there that I find utterly fascinating. Well. I can't give you more lifetimes, but I can give you more shows because I'm going to enjoy that conversation. I, t I can't tell you, David, how much I'm looking forward to actually making a work with you. Yeah, look, Lee, it'll be really lovely. To, uh, be really lovely to get the opportunity to do that with you. Um, it's also a kind of a, a landmark for me, in as much as I think I can say unequivocally that I'm the only creative around who has now worked with every artistic director of the Queensland Theatre Company. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's excellent. That is excellent. Well, it's in, what, in 37 years, well, yes. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation and I promise everybody we will actually make the play. There will be many <laughs> meals and there will be many conversations about light because it is Sarah Bernhardt after all. But I think that's one of the things that I love about a life in the theatre is that the conversations that we have, the tangents, if you like, and all of the knowledge that people pull in to make this one little story in this moment, it's filled with lifetimes of other thoughts and observations. And, you know, there's... And that's just the one, the one brain, uh, the one expert that's coming in that's talking that's about right. light. But there's a whole lifetime of a relationship to light that will frame the final moments of a play in such a way that I could never imagine. Mm. So I'm mm. looking forward to your light imagination. Uh, yeah, look, in, in that process, I must say the part that I like is when all bets are off initially and you're not worried about budget or anything like that, just thinking if we wanted to do this, how would you do this? If we what's, wanted to do this, this, how would we do the, it? The yeah. dreaming of And then of I kind of, there's always that point in me where I kind of go, and then this, then this would happen, <laughs> then, then I'd have to make it in Germany where they have that kind of money. <laughs> but then we invent ways of achieving it without that, and that's that question of theatre magic. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. It's, it's also cutting your cloth to measure. There's a whole range of yeah. things you do. Um, yeah. It's, uh, good design is, is good design, whether it's I'm done on a on a in a tiny little room with no money, or in a giant theatre with with vast amounts of money and years to rehearse. It's still good. It's still good design, one way or the other. Well, I'm looking forward to making a little bit of magic for you, and thank you to everybody that's dipped in on this conversation. I hope you I hope you enjoy the the theatre magic made by David Walters. Look forward to it, Lee. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Quality Time. Please rate and review it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter at QLD Theatre. 
You can visit our website, queenslandtheatre.com.au, to sign up to our e-news and learn more about the stories we'll be sharing next. We hope to see you at the theatre again soon. Bye!